Departamento del Tesoro de eh, los Estados Unidos de América ha publicado una licencia amplia para la producción, la comercialización, la exploración, la venta, la exportación de petróleo de Venezuela, es decir, se levanta la sanción. Sanctions relief at last. The U.S. Treasury Department issued a six-month license allowing production, investment, and sale in the Venezuelan oil, gas, and gold sectors, a move classified by the Venezuelan government as the suspension of sanctions. The announcement came on the heels of an agreement signed between the Nicolás Maduro government and the U.S.-backed unitary platform establishing certain conditions for the 2024 presidential elections. Sanctions easing is undoubtedly a positive development, but we should proceed with caution. The announcement by the U.S. Treasury Department was riddled with latent threats, saying they were prepared to amend or revoke authorizations at any time should the Biden administration unilaterally determine that the Venezuelan government has not followed through on agreements. No country should have to go through a licensing process with the U.S.-based Office of Foreign Assets Control to sell their own resources. At the time of publishing, relations between the U.S. and Venezuela had not yet been normalized and Venezuelan state entities have not regained access to U.S.-based bank accounts, which adds logistical obstacles to any transaction. At the end of the day, the White House is still seeking regime change in Venezuela. They've just adjusted their strategy. Ultimately, only the Venezuelan people should decide their destiny and government. Make no mistake, this is a victory for the Venezuelan people and a tribute to their perseverance and resistance against imperialist aggression. Venezuela and its people were not subdued by Washington's war against them. Instead, a valiant people, committed to their emancipatory process, found inventive ways to survive and continue building an innovative socialist project. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftists and grassroots forces. On today's episode, we present to you two new books on Venezuela. The first is A War Without Bombs, The Social, Political, and Economic Impact of Sanctions Against Venezuela, written and published by the Venezuela Analysis Team. The book is now available to everyone to download for free on our brand new website. The world must not be allowed to forget that Washington set out to overthrow the Bolivarian Revolution. In recent years, relying on an all-out economic war against Venezuela with a weapon of choice, unilateral coercive measures, commonly known as sanctions. The book features essays, infographics, and interviews with expert analysts to expose the mechanics of sanctions, their impact, and the geopolitical implications. It likewise features testimonies of popular resistance from Bolivarian grassroots organizations. On today's program, we'll also look at Commune or Nothing, Venezuela's communal movement and its socialist project by Chris Gilbert, professor of political studies at the Universidad Bolivariana de Venezuela. Chris talks to us about the place of communes in Venezuela's socialist project, as well as their place as a site of struggle and resistance against the U.S. economic blockade. But first, a conversation with Venezuela analysis Sira Pascual Maquina about the thinking behind a book on sanctions and the stories within 
that detail what working people in Venezuela are doing to build a socialist alternative in a country under siege. Hi, Sira. Thank you for joining us. The preface to the book starts with the following, quote, Ever since the 1998 election of Hugo Chavez, Washington has been trying to overthrow the Bolivarian Revolution. In recent years, regime change efforts have mostly relied on an all-out economic war against Venezuela, with a weapon of choice, unilateral coercive measures, commonly known as sanctions. A war without bombs, the social, political, and economic impact of sanctions against Venezuela aims to provide Venezuela analysis readers, internationalists, activists, and people committed to social justice with the tools to understand and collectively revert the devastating impact of the blockade on the people of Venezuela. End quote. As the member of the Venezuela analysis team that drove this process behind the book forward, why did you feel motivated to document the impact of sanctions in this way? What role can this book play in reverting the impact of the blockade? Thank you, Jose Luis. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be talking with you today about this book, A War Without Bombs, which is actually a collective effort of the Venezuela analysis team. And it's particularly good for us to be doing this as we turn 20 years old as an outlet. We've been at it for 20 years. Venezuelan analysis has always doc documented the efforts of the Venezuelan people, uh, of the grassroots, and of the Bolivarian government to build a sovereign and socialist uh, alternative in Venezuela. So that has always been one of the legs that we've walked on. And then we walk on another leg, which basically documents the frankly restless efforts of US imperialism to overthrow the Bolivarian government and the Bolivarian revolution through coups, sabotages, paramilitary incursions, and eventually an all-out economic war against the people of Venezuela, because that's what sanctions are. And sanctions kill, uh, they have killed uh, tens, or actually hundreds of thousands of people in Venezuela. So we thought it was very important that we, because we've been working on documenting these basically since 2015, which is when Obama um, released the, his decree declaring Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat, and that's when sanctions begin. Since then, we've been documenting the efforts of the U.S. government to overthrow the Bolivarian revolution via sanctions. So in 2015, there was the Obama decree. In 17, the financial sanctions were set in place. In 19, 2019, an oil embargo set in place. And that really was, uh, you know, like really an intensification of this war against the Venezuelan people because Venezuela is a country that historically had relied on oil exports to, for its economic activity. So uh, it really had, uh, the, the sanctions and specifically the oil embargo had a devastating effect on our economy. So um, the consequences, as I was saying, um, I was saying before, well, actually through 2020, some 100,000 people uh, died. But uh, right now, as we speak, there are 300,000 chronic disease patients uh, without treatment, people who have chronic diseases who cannot access treatment. But there's also many other problems like Access to gasoline is really difficult because Venezuela, while Venezuela is an oil producer, uh, access to diluents has become really uh, 
complex because of the international sanctions on Venezuela. So that actually implies that uh, production in Venezuela has gone down drastically, as well as, of course, imports. So uh, with the book, we wanted to put, um, we wanted to build a pedagogical tool, but also a political tool for the left and for people who care for humanity in general to understand the origin of the crisis that Venezuela is currently living and hopefully to promote action from the readers because of course in the global north there are many people who maybe have heard about the sanctions, people on the left who are aware of them, but to understand the scope of it uh, is actually important in order to promote uh, action, political action. So that's our objective. And one of the interesting things about the book is that it's not only a quantitative narrative, which is good and necessary, but it also brings in a human factor. That's, I think, I would say, one of the virtues of the book. So, uh, yeah, the book uh, is there as, uh, as a tool to educate and to bring about change. Can you speak to us about the way the book is organized? What is each section about? So the, the book is divided into four sections. The first section has articles and infographics that expose the mechanics of the sanctions. Uh, they delve into the real-life impact, uh, and they also look at specifically at the sanctions on the oil industry, on CITGO, etc., etc. And this section also has an article on the ma mass media discourse that legitimates the, the sanctions, these deadly policies. This is important because the mainstream media basically builds these uh, discourses that actually um, legitimate the deadly actions taken by the by the U.S. government, by the Department of Treasury, etc., etc. This section, as I was just saying, it also comes with infographics, and the infographics can can help you kind of like get some of the big picture about the impact of the section. So, so some of the data that I was giving you in the in the earlier question comes. Uh, it's also related in those infographics. So that's the first section. And it's, I would say it's like the section that you have to read if you need to get the basics on the sanctions. The second section uh, brings together three interviews that we did with three experts and uh, from the left that talk about the political, economic, and social impact of the sanctions but they also have a geopolitical perspective. The people that we interviewed are Robert Patnick, uh, Alex Main, Alexander Main, and Gregory Wilpert. And why is it important to have a geopolitical perspective on the sanctions? Well, obviously Venezuela is not the only country that is under siege by U.S. imperialism via sanctions. Uh, sanctions have become kind of like a weapon of choice by U.S. imperialism to impose its agenda. Uh, generally, it doesn't work. Of course, it's been set in place for, uh, in, against the people of Cuba, Cuba for basically for, for decades, but of, in recent times, it's become really uh, the most common form of trying to overthrow governments. The most common form 
that the U.S. government applies to overthrow governments that it doesn't like. So having a geopolitical perspective on this is really important when to understand the impact of sanctions on Venezuela and why sanctions are being applied. Uh, well, one couldn't do that without understanding the, the whole world, no? And also without being solidarious with the other peoples of the world who are living under under sanctions regimes. And the third section uh, basically brings together Venezuela analysis, uh, specifically myself and Chris Gilbert, we have been working on an ongoing series of in-depth uh, articles that is called uh, Communal and Working Class Resistance. And basically, this is a collection of testimonies that unveils the impact of the U.S. blockade on grassroots organization and how they, rain or shine, continue to build a post-capitalist society. So this is actually a section that is, and we'll talk more about it, this is actually a section that actually gives you hope because uh, no matter what U.S. imperialism does, people still struggle and not only do they struggle, but they build alternatives here. And the fourth section is a section that basically offers a glossary, a glossary of uh, terms that are important to know to navigate uh, the whole kind of like network, the, the woven network of sanctions that the U.S. imposes on Venezuela and on other countries. So to understand the difference between a primary sanction and a secondary sanction, what is overcompliance, what are targeted sanctions, to understand all these uh, terms that in at the end of the day kind of like uh, oftentimes are there to kind of like erase the real impact of the sanctions, well, this... Uh, this glossary should be useful. So it's kind of like a, a short but useful um, educational tool in the book for, for our readers. And for, of course, anybody who's interested in trying to revert uh, this, this, imperialist, um, this imperialist form of making war, of doing the war against the peoples of the global south, against those who... who wake up and say, ya basta, no more. You contributed heavily to the final section, where the book addresses what working people in Venezuela are doing to build a socialist alternative in the country under siege. In our next section, we're going to speak with Chris Gilbert about the hope that Venezuela's communes offer. Here, I'd like for you to tell us about the communities you've met and spoken with, what they're doing to build that alternative in these difficult circumstances. What can readers outside Venezuela take away from these efforts by the communards? So in this series that I was saying before is called Communal and Working Class Resistance. Our objective is on the one hand to understand how the sanctions actually have a real tangible impact on the lives of Venezuelans who are building an alternative. But it also was important to, for us to make it be known that the working people of Venezuela are actually building a socialist alternative in a country under siege. I think this is super important. And it actually gives hope, I think, to those who it will give hope to those who read, uh, who read the text, who read our book. So um, one thing that's important to know when we think about the situation in Venezuela is that, of course, the mainstream media always silences the impact of the sanctions on the people of Venezuela uh, and 
who could be surprised by that. But as it happens, it is also the progressive media that tends to focus on, on the other one hand, the, the policies of U.S. imperialism, but also it focuses on the actions of the Venezuelan government. And they tend to focus on the issue of sanctions, looking at it quantitatively, not qualitatively. Then there's another issue that personally has been concerning me for a long time, which is that uh, when Venezuelans are actually portray uh, portrayed in the media, and specifically in the progressive media, they are rendered as passive victims as and not as subjects of transformation. Of course, uh, everybody who's living in Venezuela is actually a victim of the U.S. blockade. But are we just victims? Or is there something else here? And I think that, uh, well, if you are committed to a justice, you know, like the, a traditional set of, a, a traditional conception of justice, um, we could say even a bourgeois uh, sense of justice, you could focus exclusively on the human rights issues and you could look, turn to NGOs and the UN to solve the problems. And that's fair. But from a revolutionary perspective, from a radical Chavista and left perspective, that's not enough. Basically, in Venezuela, there's a large group of, there's a large percentage of the population that's committed to transformations and to those in the global north, in the English-speaking world, that are committed also to profound transformations, I think it's important for those people to learn about the experiments of people in communes and in worker-controlled in worker factories, to learn about them, to hear from them, because basically not only are we victims, but we are also building a new future here in this territory that we call Venezuela. And the lessons that we that people can get from them are many, are wonderful, and they are also full of hope. So we've made we've put published some ten specials on and these books these specials are based on testimonials. Uh, we have incorporated two of these testimonial specials in the in the book. The first one is about El Panal Commune, and the second one is about Indorca, a metal mechanic uh, factory in Puerto Ordaz, in the south of the country. So uh, let's go, let's take one at a time. Um, El Panal Commune is a commune in Caracas in 23 de Enero, which is a working class and very rebellious barrio, a neighborhood. And um, it's interesting that El Panal Commune is actually the first territory that called itself a commune actually already in 2006. In 2006, Chavez was talking about consejos comunales, communal councils, which were small, self-organized, assembly-based spaces where people took decisions on how to solve their problems together. And it was actually legislated. And we are talking about 2006. But the people from El Panal Commune were simultaneously reading about the Paris Commune, they were reading about Soviets, about the Chinese Communes, and they said, well, let's not just do communal councils, let's do something bigger. Let's do something that looks at the transformation of the society as a whole. Let's start with building a commune. So in 2006, they built an arch, an, an entry arch in the, in the entrance of, the, of what we know as the commune, and they wrote on it, and it's written on it, the archway is still there, it says, Comuna Insurgente del Panal 2021. 
the commune, uh, what is the commune? Uh, you know, like Chavez proposes socialism in 2006, but it's not until 2009 that he actually proposes that our, our way to socialism should be the commune. Uh, the communes are, of course, not Chavez's invention. They're actually the synthesis of the whole Bolivarian process, but they are also the synthesis of the maroon and indigenous forms of organization that were highly democratic, basically communistic organizations that existed uh, in resistance to Spanish uh, colonialism. So the communes, while they may be linked to the Paris Commune in terms of their history, in terms of the imaginary, but they are also linked to actual real existing experiences of building of, uh, of organization in the Venezuelan territory and in the Latin American territory, of course, too. So there's another third element that comes into Chavez's reflection about the communes, which is his conversation with Mesados. Mesados more or less discovers or comes to the conclusion that the problem with East Bloc Socialism was that the metabolism of capital persisted. In other words, that there wasn't a, de a full democratization of society. So while there was no longer uh, private ownership of the means of production, there still were hierarchical forms of organization. So that's a little bit kind of like a very brief synthesis of what's, uh, where the idea of the commune comes from. So Chavez being with the Bolivarian process, being highly democratic, Chavez uh, reflects with the Venezuelan people and with Mesados, and they collectively think about the Soviets and the Paris Commune and the Chinese Communes, and, and they link all of that to the maroon and indigenous forms of organizations. And uh, there's this uh, marvelous creation, which is the Venezuelan Commune. So the, the section about El Panal Commune basically has, has all this uh, work that we've been talking about, this resistance work the series of resistance, uh, working class and communal resistance that we've been talking about, uh, they all are based on testimonies. This one too is based on testimonies in which the commoners and the cadres talk about the origin of the commune, which I was telling you about just before, you know, like the commune being formed in 2006, but also going back further, how the commoners in the prior organization, in the Cruz Patriotica Alexis Vive, actually displaced um, the drug gangs from the territory to create a space where people uh, could live and organize. So that's how they got uh, the, the first cadres of, that would eventually form the commune. That's how they got moral authority. And they go into their form of organization. How, how does the communal model work at the El Panal? Uh, how the social property enterprises work? So at El Panal, there is a textile factory and a bakery and a packing plant, and a pig farm, and a greenhouse, etc., etc. All these means of production are under social property. What does this mean? Of course, it means that there's no individual uh, property. They are not a cooperative either. These are means of productions that are owned by the community. So it is the community that democratically in an assembly, which would be the, the highest form of organization of the commune, they collectively decide what they are going to produce, how they are going to produce it, and how they are going to distribute it, and, super important, what they are going to do with the excellent, with the surplus, rather. And finally, when we go into this section, in the section about the commune, the panel commune, we delve into issues like what is the impact of the sanctions on the commune, uh, how has been uh, production hurt, uh, the kind of illnesses that people face, the problem with 
people migrating out of the country. But more important than that, uh, one thing that we delve in, into in this section is how the people in the commune, how the communards organize, for instance, to deliver food to everybody. How they, before what we call the club, which is the state-run system for distributing food so that everybody in Venezuela has food. Uh, there was actually in the El Panel Commune and in other communes too, self-organized initiatives to buy and distribute uh, foods to make sure that nobody was going hungry. Uh, we also learned about how they care for the community, how there's a popular canteen, how they, the commune kept the school open when there was no money to pay teachers or to keep the, the canteen open. The commune itself actually assumed those responsibilities and made sure also that some of the poorest people had access to medicines, etc., etc. So basically, one of the most interesting things about this, um, about El Pinal Commune and all the communes that we have visited and we have lived in, which are a bunch by now, uh, basically what commune shows is, is that in the present, a commune can give you actual solutions to the very uh, serious problems that people face in a country under siege. And they do it while they also build a new set of social relations, not based on exploitation. So you can see in the commune both a solution to the present, but also the construction of a future, the construction, the building of a new socialist future. And then there's Indorka, and I will try to be brief because I did talk a long time about uh, about El Panal because it's very dear to my heart, but Indorca is also very, very dear to our hearts. Indorca is a metal mechanic factory serving the steel industry in Puerto Ordaz in the south of in the south of the country, in the kind of like the industrial hub of Venezuela. And this is a factory run by the workers, a factory without bosses basically since 2015. How did this come about? Well the history goes as follows. In 2012 during Chavez's presidency, the labor, a new labor law was passed that was a, definitely a progressive labor law. And many owners of factories, many um, capitalists, went in an owner's track at that time. So they basically fired all the workers and many of them attempted to dismantle the factories that they had owned. What did the workers of Indorca and, by the way, of many other factories did uh, do at the time? Well, basically, in the case of Indorca, for two years, they set a, a guard around the factory, protecting the premises and protecting the machinery. They did this and they, they succeeded at keeping, at maintaining most of, the, most of the machinery in there. And after two years, the government gave the workers the right to re-enter the factory and to take control, democratic control of the factory and reactivate it and run it. And it's still running until today. As you can imagine, this process has, wasn't easy at all because after two years of the factory being basically uh, not producing and also there were some attempts at sabotaging and actually sabota actual sabotages by the thugs by thugs at the, paid by the, by the owner. So, but they were able to reactivate it with a lot of work and with a lot of collaboration from other workers in other factories. The most interesting thing about this factory today is that it's under democratic control. There, basically everybody uh, gets paid the same. 
everybody takes decisions as to uh, everybody participates in a monthly assembly where they go kind of like dollar by dollar this dollar this amount of dollars came in this amount of dollars went out we have the possibility of taking this job and it's voted together collectively if they'll take the job or not they decide what to do with the accident with the surplus they also decide what their wages are going to be etc etc and all this is done in an assembly manner so this is really extraordinary because one of the things about venezuela is that since the the sanctions began many many factories have closed both state owned and also uh, factories that were in the hands of uh, of private capitalists in fact i would say most of the factories uh, closed down over the past few years but that wasn't the case with indorca and i would argue that's because it is democratically owned that this factory didn't shut down. So then there's also uh, other, e the, in this section, we also delve into the impact of the sanctions, which has been huge. Uh, of course, during the worst years of the sanctions, they were producing very little, but they also, this, this case study also shows us uh, the great ingenuity of the working class, for instance, uh, because of the sanctions, there's things like manifolds that cannot be imported from abroad, manifolds being uh, kind of like uh, mechanisms that are needed in, in oil wells to, uh, to control the, the flow of oil. So these uh, workers actually from a, an old manifold were able to recreate new manifolds. So it's really, really amazing what these people have been able to do. And they've been able to do it democratically. And as I was saying, and I really want to highlight this, they've been doing it in conditions that are so difficult that brought most uh, factories to a shutdown because of lack of resources, of, of, uh, of raw materials, because there was no gasoline for the workers to get to the, the centers of production, etc., etc. There's one, I will close with this, there's one thing that uh, one of the, of the people, one of the workers in Indorca said to us that I think is really important. You know, like when you are in a situation, when you're in a country under siege, of course, there's a temptation to kind of like take the um, pragmatic path. And the pragmatic path in a, social, in a capitalist society is capitalism. But Chio, this uh, wonderful comrade, he said that actually the solution for Venezuela's problem is not uh, less socialism, but more socialism. And I guess I would like to close with that because I think that what they've taught us is tremendous, is really important. And their voice is the one who should um, tell you, who, who the, their voice is the one that's going to tell you most about it. That's why, once again, we encourage you to download the book, which is free. We also encourage you to support Venezuela Analysis because this work uh, takes resources. Uh, we encourage you to distribute the book as well, to read it collectively. And of course, we encourage you to do whatever action you can to make sure that uh, there's an end brought to these really deadly sanctions that are imposed on Venezuela and on the people of many other uh, countries in the global south. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Independencia o nada. In our next segment, we will speak with Chris Gilbert, co-author 
of Venezuela, the Present of Struggle, and co-host of Escuela de Cuadros, a Marxist educational television program and podcast about his new book, Commune or Nothing, Venezuela's Communal Movement and its Socialist Project, now available from Monthly Review. Hello, Chris. Thank you for joining us here on the program. And, well, let's start at the beginning. I want to ask you, why did you put in the title of the introduction, putting the commune back into communism? What does that tell us about what this book is all about? Uh, that's a good question, Jose Luis, and I'm happy to be back on, the, on your podcast. Um, I, my book is titled uh, Commune or Nothing, Venezuela's Communal Movement and its Socialist Project. I chose the title uh, Putting the Commune Back into Communism for the introduction, partly with a view to uh, Marx, uh, Marx himself. If you think about Marx's work, I think that one of the blind spots that people have had is with regard to Marxism is the role of the commune in Marxist thought. Um, in fact, uh, communes were present in Marxist thought uh, really almost from the beginning. Well, if you look at, for example, in Marxist writing from the 1840s, there's a great emphasis on self-emancipation. As early as 1843, there's a letter to, Carl, to Arnold Rugg in which he defends the idea of self, the self-emancipation of the working class. And then there are these statements in the mid-century in the in the Communist Manifesto in which he talks about the future society as an association, of, a free association of producers. And I always ask myself, what is that except for a commune? And then as we move forward, Marx talks in the Grundrisse manuscripts about communes in different societies and in ancient Greek society, ancient Roman society, German tribal society, and, and in Asia. And he asks the question to the readers, uh, or he poses the question, is not, he says it's not surprising that um, people are joined with their means, communal means of production, but rather that they get separated from it. And then maybe better known is how later in his life, faced with the Paris Commune, Marx uh, says that that's the form finally discovered for proletarian emancipation. And late in his life, he defends the Russian Commune in his letters to Beres Asulik. And he also takes a great interest in indigenous forms of communal organization among the Iroquois and also among Algerian peasants. So I always ask the question to myself, why is it people pay so little attention to the commune in Marx? And when I put this, um, when I say putting the commune back into communism, I'm really looking at how the Venezuelan people or maybe Latin Americans more generally, the Latin American popular movement has uh, through an organic process, partly an organic process and partly through intellectual work, recovered the idea of communal organizing and put it back into communism. As far as like intellectual work, a stellar example would be Mariategui, who talked about uh, the Incans' practical socialism or practical communism. Uh, but perhaps more important for my book is the way the Latin American popular movement has partly relying, or in a great measure relying on indigenous traditions of self-governance or maroon um, anti-slavery movement, have taken these communal traditions and shaped them into a current day project. In Venezuela, of course, this has a specific history. Chavez, of course, took um, participative and protagonistic democracy as one of his central programmatic points for the 20 or 30, almost 30 years of the Bolivarian process. If one thinks about Chavez beginning the Bolivarian process in the 1990s. And we can see how these ideas come into the movement and they gradually issue into the idea of the commune when, the, uh, when Chavez throws out the idea of, throws out to the public the idea of that the commune would be the basic cell of socialism in 2009, and that's followed quickly by the communal laws in 2010. Yeah, and it, that kind of tells us a little bit about 
how this concept of the commune became in many ways, the site within the Bolivarian revolution, the Bolivarian process, where these ideas of socialism are actually best being realized and being put into practice, that sort of rescuing of some of the political ideas that have always been there uh, from the beginning of, of the Bolivarian process. And in, in the book, you write, quote, self-organized communities around the country seized on the communal project, end quote. So what is it about the communal project, specifically in Venezuela, that made it appealing, that made it the site of struggle in the Venezuelan context? I think particularly given this present context where there's just a merciless economic blockade against the country. Sure. Um, that's a fascinating story. I always think that people um, don't often tell the truth about revolutions because both the revolutionaries and the counter-revolutionaries like to tell his story in a particular way, in a linear way. And that's actually not the right way of telling the story of the Bolivarian process, particularly with regard to the communal idea and the communal project. Um, you know, so I mentioned just now that, Mar that um, Chavez threw out the idea publicly of building the um, socialism with communes as the basic cells in 2009. But to tell you the truth, that idea didn't really seize hold of the masses at that point. People, of course, uh, all of us followed Chavez and took note of what he said and responded in some way or another. But the response was in great deal, in great measure, formalistic. People put made communes of paper. The material conditions really didn't lend itself because of even the, the abundance from oil profits at that time, people were still looking to the state as a kind of assistentialist solution. So it's only if we fast forward five or six years later when the crisis really hits that people began to really make serious material, substantial communes. That's an interesting story. I often, or at least in the book, and sometimes often I recur to this idea of Marx when he says an idea becomes a material force when it grips the masses. But the truth is ideas don't become material forces until the masses grip them. I always like to turn the phrase around. And so it's when the masses grip the idea of the commune in the mid-10s, in the mid-2010s, that it really took on force. In a way, people should take heart. People around the world can take heart on that idea. I mean, it was the worst of times, but also the, it was the worst of times for all of us in Venezuela. But in some, times it, in some ways, it was the best of times for a communal organization, because that's when the project began to really take on substance. I see that people might take heart, people who hope to change the world might take heart in that idea. I often think of how Lenin, in the eve of what was turned out to be the eve of the, uh, the Russian Revolution in early um, 1917, was talking to students, uh, Swiss students. And he said he probably wouldn't see the revolution in his lifetime. And a few months later, he turned out to be wrong. So one doesn't really know when an idea will take hold of hold in people. And it, the word people do now, even if times seem grim, um, might pay off later on downstream. And so that helps kind of situate this moment for the communards inside Venezuela, that it's more so a, a response to what's happening materially inside of the country as a result of its contradictions with U.S. imperialism. That's certainly correct, yes. The hand of imperialism has an important role in, in Latin American politics always. But, of course, it's, it's important to, to emphasize the agency people have, the agency people have through constructing, projecting, building. That's what my story is about in great measure. I, these days, of course, and one goes on thinking about how the sanctions have terribly, have inflicted so much pain and death on Venezuelans, and it can fill one with anger. It can fill one with rage. But at the same time, what's impressive is that many people here have converted that rage 
or the material circumstances into a substantial project and have gone forward. It's that, it's that, one, it's that, that my book is really about. At the same time, of course, I hope that by showing what people have done, showing what people have built here, showing the communal project and its gloriousness, its beauty, to put it that way, one can, one can also put in sharper contrast the horror of the sanctions, the cruelness, the murderousness of them. That's part of my project. I focus on communal construction, but in the background, of course, is the hand of imperialism and the terrible fact of sanctions and interference. Now, talking about the social relations that exist in these communes and these communal spaces, you know, we've previously talked about some of your other work where you've talked to the bit of the winding road that Chavez and the Bolivarian process kind of took, you know, first talking about co-ops and also uh, the social production enterprises and, and settling upon this idea of the commune. And you write, the essence of a commune is a new set of social relations, which are not usually immediate visible, end quote. You know, someone who spent a lot of time in these communes, among the communards, can you describe some of these social relations, these creations that are happening in these spaces, in these territories, and what sets them apart from other forms of bottom-up organization that we might see, say, something like a co-op? That's a good question. Um, I come very clear in what, what I see as the essential social relation being built in communes. In fact, I think one of the most important contributions of the book, and one never knows what the most important contribution, contribution is because, of, because one is so close to a work, but I think that one of the most important contributions is a theory or a hypothesis about what a socialist commune is. And so my hypothesis is that the essence, I say this in, in print, I say the essence of a commune, the essence of a socialist commune is democratically organized, directly social labor. That's kind of a mouthful, but what is directly social labor? Directly social labor is the idea that instead of a market, instead of, us, we, instead of our producing things for a market, and they are getting socialized through the impersonal mechanisms of the market. We, as a community, democratically decide what we're going to produce, um, the, the what, the how, the how much. Um, and, of course, that has a huge change. It's curious, I'd like to emphasize democratically organized because directly social labor exists and in feudal societies, for example. It was often the case in feudal, so, feudal societies, but it wasn't, of course, democratic. That has a huge change on how people, that effectively end, should end exploitation, and it should end alienation um, because those are generated, in the case of alienation and exploitation, they have, have everything to do with the forms of wage labor that exist in our society. It also has the second imp extremely important aspect, and this comes, uh, this is, I think, part of the contribution that I make to the theorization of communes, is that as we know in our society, half or more than half of the work is unpaid labor, unpaid social reproductive labor the work of care, the work of, of the household work that is often underpaid or often unpaid, perhaps underpaid. It's often carried about by women and it's generally undervalued. This kind of labor, the commons also should convert all of, the, all of this labor into the democratically, directly social labor and it should take labor out of the household, socialize it and therefore in the hierarchy that exists in capitalist society between so-called productive labor, wage la that would be wage labor, and the social reproductive labor that it consistently un undervalues. And that's why I think communes have the possibility of overcoming not just exploitation and alienation, but also the whole range of oppressions that exist in our society, from the oppression of gender, the oppression, racial oppression, which have a great deal to do with how this 
um, underpaid or unpaid labor is assigned to people and the oppressive context in which the oppressive and private context in which it's carried out. So that's that's those are the internal social relations of the commune. You mentioned a cooperative. A cooperative is a, is a markedly less ambitious project, not only because most cooperatives go on producing principally for the market, they have no other choice because they are in a capitalist society. Um, and in, so internally, they cannot create the same, the same directly social labor. They can't join production and consumption. They can't overcome the hierarchy between so-called productive labor and reproductive labor. But the other thing about Venezuelan communes, um, and this is kind of the elephant in the room, is that Venezuelan communes are part of a strategic socialist project. And that is an extraordinary situation, an extraordinary achievement of the Bolivarian process, which allows an isolated, it means that a commune isn't an isolated project, but is part of a strategic um, network of communes that aims to hegemonize the whole economy and also overcome the capitalist state form. So that makes it a much more ambitious project, a project for transforming the whole society on a national level, and one hopes also internationally. I like that you use that word ambitious. You know, I was reading some of the book and then you mentioned, you talk about this communal systems are more sustainable, less destructive and alienating, and in many senses, more humanly gratifying. And you're talking about how not only is this a space where we can kind of imagine a non-capitalist mode of production, but also a space to respond to those different and various intersecting oppressions that humans do experience. And I know that much of the left, especially this English-speaking left, the left that uh, lives and organizes inside the belly of the beast, is desperately searching for these alternatives, this idea of what socialism can really look like and how that can actually you know, open the door to resisting oppressions. But I find that much of this same left doesn't seem to focus or even talk much about communes in Venezuela. So would you say that your book is an effort to correct that, to hopefully get people to talk more, to focus on the possibilities that communes have, particularly in the experience of the Venezuelan revolution? And ideally, what would you say you would like people to take away from the text after reading it? Oh, well, that question is absolutely on the mark. One thing I often say about the text, I like to uh, quote Marx. Uh, Marx said in Latin, and he said, de te fabula narrator, when he was speaking about capital. And that, I guess, in Latin means this is a story about you. So Marx was saying to German readers, German readers who might be thinking, why should I be interested in English capitalism? Because that's the subject. That's the material example taken in capital. Why should I be reading this book about English capitalism? Well, I would say the same thing to my readers around the world. Um, what, if they ask the question, why should I be reading about Venezuela and their communal project? And I would say, well, this is a story about you. It's a story about what people can be, what can be done in one's own context. Of course, changing, changing the changeable, you know, adapting to one's context. And I think, as you were pointing out, there's a great deal of Eurocentrism in the left uh, that, that has many, many manifestations. One of the ones that I find frequently is that people always talk, leftists, my friends, many of them, always focus on the Russian Revolution, but pay very little attention to the Chinese Revolution or the Vietnamese Revolution. Um, but these were extraordinary revolutions, and they continued and criticized the Soviet process, and I believe contributed to what one say the universal body of socialist thought. So the same thing goes for Venezuela. I'd like to say what's being done in Venezuela is a story that people 
that pertains to its hypothesis about socialist construction that should be evaluated and should be thought of as a contribution to the universal body of socialist thought. When I say universal, I just mean because capitalism is universal. I don't mean to say it's from a certain positionality. I just mean that all of us face capitalism and therefore overcoming capitalist re relations is a general project that people face around the world today. So I hope people will pay attention to what's, what's, what's written in the book, or more importantly, what's taking place in Venezuela. The most interesting parts of it, and that's what, that's what we believe, is that the communal project is the most interesting advanced part of what's going on in Venezuela, and people should pay attention to it. Well, I'm really grateful for you having written this book and helping to correct that record, helping to shine a spotlight on what's happening. I know that's what we try to do at Venezuela Analysis as well. So I invite all our listeners to also check out our website and the work of Chris, which is often featured on the site, but everybody else here at the team at Venezuela Analysis, where we try to do our best to also you know, share about what's happening inside the country precisely with that aim so that people can understand that there is a lot to be learned from this, that we can go from the particular to the general in this case, and hopefully be able to apply that to uh, their domestic circumstances because you know the, the world needs us to be better organized and to learn from these experiences. And again, I think your book here is a valuable contribution to that effort. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add before we cut away. Well, maybe I'll mention the title again, Commune or Nothing. It's kind of vernacular here. It's the most common uh, slogan of the, of the movement. Someone would say it's an obvious title for the book, but I actually want to point to among the many dimensions, among the many dimensions, dimensions of that slogan, there's an existential slogan. In the multi-crisis we're facing today, which is, includes an economic crisis, but also an environmental crisis, I think uh, that if we do not act, if we do not attempt to build an alternative, uh, we might be facing the nothing. So the communal project here also has an ecological dimension. I was talking about uh, directly social labor. Directly social labor is about producing not exchange values, but use values and producing them, producing use values with a, in, in view of a particular need of someone. And that kind of production is necessarily limited, rationally limited. So there's also an important essential ecological prominence built into the Venezuelan commune. And that's part of what commune or nothing is. I, all of us hope that uh, here that we'll choose a, a communal communist future instead of the nothing that might await us. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Chris Gilbert, author of Commune or Nothing, Venezuela's Communal Movement and its Socialist Project, available from Monthly Review. Thanks very much, Jose Luis. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored, check out Episode 18, Challenging the Bipartisan Imperialist Consensus on Venezuela, Episode 16, The Imperialist Plunder of Venezuelan Assets, and Episode 13, Solidarity versus Sanctions. A final word. An economic turnaround in Venezuela will take time. The impact of the sanctions easing will likely not really be felt by the Venezuelan population before the presidential vote, scheduled for late 2024. This is, of course, by design. The U.S. is placing its bets on the opposition winning the election, and the White House wants to make it as easy as possible for them. An economic recovery, driven by this sanctions easing, would allow Maduro and the United Socialist Party of Venezuela to, correctly, say that the economic crisis was a product of the sanctions. It's the same reason why the $3 billion deal signed last November between the government and the opposition never really materialized. Nonetheless, there will be some immediate effects. Venezuela will no longer need to work with intermediaries to export oil, which had meant selling crude at significant discounts while also facilitating corruption 
as was exposed earlier this year. Venezuelan economist Francisco Rodriguez predicts that based on recent oil prices and assuming current production levels, the sale of Venezuelan oil at market rates would mean an extra $3.6 billion of yearly revenue for the government. The easing of sanctions is to be celebrated, but it would be a step too far to call this the end of sanctions. There is still a long way to go. Be sure to visit us at VenezuelaAnalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram and, of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends. We'll end today's episode with the song El Imperio Mismo by Iskra. Occasionally have to twist the arms of countries. From Russia to China to Venezuela. Este es un país en el que el secretario de defensa sale en la televisión y le dice tranquilamente al público oh, que esto lo hacemos por la libertad, no por el petróleo. Esta es la tierra de la libertad y la patria de los valientes. Tierra de libertad y el hogar de los valientes Los angloestadounidenses heredaron de Inglaterra Su vocación imperial y con la guerra Mantienen el control hegemónico Político, estratégico, económico Posicionándose para el intercambio atómico Y de modo irónico usan la ONU y sus ONGs Para poner al mundo a sus pies Violando diplomáticamente la soberanía Que no viole bajo la mesa la CIA Perfeccionando cada día sus apología y su política colonialista y usando su pueblo como el instrumento para su conquista formando su imperio a base del engaño de los medios su conflagración y su jueguito de nintendo y su película de acción que nuestra mente siembra en su idea y cosecha nuestra dominación manteniéndonos anestesiados con el sueño americano gracias a la pesadilla de los pueblos latinoamericanos te hacen ver el hambre y la guerra como algo lejano y nos han tenido 100 años acostumbrados a su combate por recursos naturales para las transnacionales y difunden sus discursos o sus dislates por sus imperios comunicacionales disfrazando la guerra de intervención el principal producto de exportación de su ministerio de agresión no de defensa Bolívar mantiene vigencia los Estados Unidos están destinados por la providencia para plagar la América de miseria con su injerencia Vienen por ti, por querer ser independiente Vendrán aquí, por nuestros recursos, no por nuestro presidente No tienen una guerra aquí, porque están ocupados en el Medio Oriente Vienen por ti, por querer ser independiente Vendrán aquí, por nuestros recursos, no por nuestro presidente No tienen una guerra aquí, porque están ocupados en el Medio Oriente Y separando el mundo entre los malos y los buenos La maquinaria propagandística está preparando el terreno con series y juegos alusivos a nosotros los países canalla preparan para mandar a la batalla las mentes de los soldados rayan para que se hagan presente donde la injerencia y el financiamiento no sea suficiente otra estrella más para su bandera otra raya más para la cebra otra vez que se limpian el culo y echan en la papelera los tratados de ginebra otro caso belli sospechoso otra matriz que lo coloca como victorioso discusión irrelevante porque para quienes inventan la guerra lo importante no es si son derrotados o si salen triunfantes lo que importa es que la guerra dure bastante por
Porque lo que para nosotros suena kaboom Para el Pentágono suena chiclín Lo que para nosotros es perder la autodeterminación Para ellos significa coronar un botín Y no tiene limitación la alienación De un sector de la oposición Que piden a gritos una invasión Como si los mercenarios y los bombardeos humanitarios Distinguieran a los escuálidos y a los revolucionarios Sus objetivos son eliminar los subversivos Saquear y implantar su pobre cultura a los nativos Venezuela, that was some mean bush We need to talk about a greater Venezuela Maduro, PSUV They're worrying about the civil unrest of Venezuela Chavez, a guy who called America a terrorist state Todo empezó hace 12 años la Federación amenazaba toda Sudamérica. Venezuela has no ties to Iran, but that Iran has a clandestine nuclear program that could potentially spread to the southern hemisphere. Venezuela has been trying to form a bloc with Bolivia, Nicaragua, and Cuba to counter U.S. dominance in the region. Estados Unidos envió una fuerza de invasión para destruir a la Federación. That these countries become a training and launching ground for Al Qaeda. In Venezuela, el vicepresidente de un poderoso estado, un poderoso imperio, y yo soy presidente de un poderoso contraimperio que es Venezuela. Iskra, la amenaza comunista. Y desde el imperio mismo, first en el beat, expropiase. No habrá piedad para nadie. Registra en la foto. Quienes dirigieron el imperio estadounidense siempre consideraron la independencia del sur como una amenaza a su apetito imperial de apoderarse de nuestras tierras, de nuestras riquezas, como parte del destino manifiesto. No es nuevo que nos declaren amenaza, miserable, balurdos. Y este es el pueblo de los libertadores, este es el pueblo de Simón Bolívar. Esta es tierra sagrada que no puede ser tocada por bota extranjera, por bota imperialista, jamás. Y debemos garantizarlo con nuestra propia vida si es necesario. Venezuela es sagrada y Venezuela se respeta.